Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, I think it was. I was on my way in uh, from my shift, and I was listening to a sermon, and just something that really stood out to me was uh, in the beginning, verses 3 through 6, Christ is talking about how we are blessed out of lacking thereof. Um, And so, if I can think correctly here. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um, I just it, that really hit me um, because Christ says that we will not be blessed, or we will be blessed out of our weakness, right? So we have to get out of the way, right? Like if we have something, we have nothing to add here. And that, I mean, that's the whole point of that, that those first verses three through six is saying like, I can use you now. You are, you're here and uh, maybe you're at the low, maybe you're, uh, you know, you're, um, you're in some sort of suffering and now Christ can use you. Um, We've said it a lot. I haven't heard it often. uh, I haven't heard it recently was uh, it's okay to not be okay. Because Christ can use you then, um, but he does not leave you there. Um, so let's pray, and then uh, Derek's going to bring us the message. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you use broken, hurting people. You comfort us in those times, Lord. And then you turn around and empower us, and you use us. Thank you for this body. Thank you for your son who came and died the death that we deserved. In your name we pray. Amen. Great. Children children can be dismissed. Yeah, pre-K and uh, babies and walkers, um, we do have those classrooms open. Uh, Dev, I mean, you just preached my sermon, so uh, thanks. I really, I seriously appreciate that. Um, yeah, so pre-K, and we also, you parents, we do have um, TVs that are live streaming in the quiet room and in the cafe as well, um, and so just just know that as well. We have pre-K open, but also um, the Babies and Walkers classroom. So as, as, Devin, um, as Devin said, we're in Matthew 5, we're recapping the Beatitudes and just walking back through to make sure that we don't miss it. Um, here's the beauty of the Bible, 
is that you could know it all you want. You could have a PhD in Bible and still only scratch the surface in what's available for it to you. I mean, you could have letters after your name upon, I mean, letters, and yet still only scratch the surface of the depths of God because we're so limited and words are not enough to describe him. Our human words are not enough to describe our creator, God. That's insane. And so what we do here is we, we try the best that we possibly can is to let God's word speak and, and present that. And so that's what we're, man, that's all we're doing um, here. And so we're, we're picking back up in the Sermon on the Mount and, and the Beatitudes specifically is where we left off in our sermon series from last year, which feels like forever ago. Um, but, but what I first want to do is if you look at verses one and two here, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, if you're, um, if you're a critic of the Bible, if you're a skeptic of the Bible, um, and you've, uh, see, skepticism of the Bible is not a bad thing as long as you stay open to let God tell you that you're wrong <laughs> and that he's right. And so if you, okay, so if you're reading this account, this Matthew account of this story, you should go to Luke 6 and read Luke's account of this story. So Luke chapter 6, we see there's a discrepancy here, and I just want to clear this up, because maybe, I hope some of you are reading this, questioning, um, questioning this. Wait, hold on a second. You said this, and now I see this, and now there's this tension and this paradox that just doesn't add up for me. And if you look at Luke 6, verse 17, and I love it. You should be looking. You should not listen to me. You should be looking at his word. Turn it on, open it up, get it in your hands. We even have some available under most chairs. Look at verse 17. So we have this Sermon on the Mount, but look at verse 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place. <laughs> Wait, hold on. I thought Jesus was preaching on a mountain. Now, Luke's account just said he went down with them and stood on a level place. What is this? How do, we, how do we pair that tension? How do we reconcile this tension? Well, good. I'm glad you asked. So here's what I want to do. Start out like this. Uh, Josh, I think we have a map. Go with that first map. All right. This is a horrible map, but I think it gives us an idea of where we're at. So if you look down at, at Jerusalem and Bethlehem, you see that Jesus uh, was born in Bethlehem. And he was born there. And Jerusalem is, is, is right above it. It's about five miles away. And what you must see is that Jesus is preaching all the way up at the Sea of Galilee. You see that way up top where it says Sermon on the Mount? And Jesus is all, has traveled that far all the way up to Capernaum and then Galilee. And Capernaum is where he set up camp. You could see if you were to break down where Jesus did a majority of his ministry, it's around the Sea of Galilee. It's where he called most of the disciples. It's where he performed a lot of his miracles. And it's actually where he preached this sermon from. This is me geeking out. So give me a second here. All right. Now what Jesus did, now go to the next map, Josh. Now what Jesus did, here's the Sea of Galilee. And if you look way up top there, the site of the Sermon on the Mount. Now the Sea of Galilee is hilly. And it's really not a mountain, it's more of a hill. And, and what, we, what we must see is Luke was saying, now when Jesus would speak, you don't have a microphone like we do here. So when Jesus would speak, they would be experts in acoustics. They would just know what works. And so he would have, when any teacher would be teaching, they would be sitting above the teacher, which is an interesting picture, is it not? 
and he would be sitting below them so that he's speaking up the mountainside and so that they could hear it. And it, it is said that you can be on the Sea of Galilee and hear teachers uh, because of the great acoustics of the, the mountainside, the hillside. And so what Jesus did in Luke 6, what Luke records, because Luke is a doctor, so he's very detailed. And what Jesus, where Jesus was, he was up higher, and what he wanted to do was find a place to sit. So there was this flat part of the hill, and so what Jesus did was he went and found that flat part, and everybody else went ahead of him to sit up top. Does that make sense? So Jesus sat down. So Luke records that he sat down at a flat spot. And Matthew, uh, because Luke is more detail-oriented than Matthew, Luke just records that, which is pretty cool, actually. And so here we are. Jesus is sitting down, as all rabbis do. When rabbis want to say something important, they sit down. Get ready. I'm going to teach you something. And Jesus is getting ready to teach us, and more specifically in that time, his disciples and all of those listening in, what? Well, you have to give it context. So look back up at chapter 4 of Matthew. Verse 17, what is Jesus getting ready to teach? Well, he just announced something pretty huge here. He just announced this, repent, which means stop. Stop, consider, and turn. Stop, consider, just wait for a moment and think about how you're living. Get ready to change the way you're living and turn around, about face. And he says this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is saying, there's a new sheriff in town, is how we put it. (laughs) There's a new king in town. And what does he do next? He calls his disciples because every good king needs people who are going to submit to his rule and reign. We walk through that. We don't need to do it again. And so then Jesus goes, and in the Beatitudes, he instructs those who are listening what it looks like to live in his kingdom. Here's what it looks like. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. (laughs) Like, talk about a whopper, right? Like, talk about just something that goes against everything we are, everything the world teaches us. The world teaches us one thing, and Jesus comes in and says a completely different thing. The world drives on the right side of the road, and Jesus says, I've called you to drive on the left. (laughs) And so here's Jesus, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who know they're empty, as Devin just said. For now they can be filled. So Jesus comes in and he's preaching and and he exposes us. And specifically we're going to look at 9 through 12. So we'll read it again just to make sure you have your eyes on it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is walking through this, and he's he's saying, you will be blessed if you are this. You won't be blessed then by byproduct, by implication, if you are this. And so when you have those who are listening in, you have a multitude of people listening in. You have those who know they're sick, who are going to a a doctor, Jesus. You have those who know they are empty, who are going to the one who can fill them, Jesus. And you also have those who think they're full and are deceived. And Jesus is intentionally placing the order of the way he does these things to say, byproduct, by just default, you're not blessed. 
So if you think you're rich, you're not inheriting the kingdom. If you think you have it all, you're all that, you will not be comforted. If you're not willing to mourn your own brokenness, you won't be comforted. And he goes on and on and on. And what does he do? He reveals to us, us. <laughs> and that's a hard thing, isn't it? To be told the deepest, hardest truth about yourself. He reveals to us, us. He reveals to me, don't, don't let me hear me. And this, you guys need to hold me accountable in this just as much as I need to hold myself and you accountable. Don't ever let me talk in such a way that I'm not talking with you instead of talking at you. You hear me? Don't ever let the, the notion or the connotation out of my mouth as if I'm speaking at you instead of speaking with you. What Jesus does is he opens me up and he exposes me, me, and it's not pretty. So don't ever let anyone who stands up here, for, for that matter, to speak as a way that they're speaking above you. No, we stand at the foot of the cross and we're crushed by my sin, not yours. That's how this works here, church. Whoever's up here is not superior than you. Whoever's up here is speaking out of their own brokenness and we've just found food and water that Christ has given us and we're just pointing you there. You hear me? Amen? So here's Jesus, and he's, and he's exposing to me, me, and it's not pretty. He, he, but he, here's what Jesus does. In my, in my vengeance, in my flesh, I expose others to make a point of how much better I am than them. Jesus exposes us to love us. This is the coolest part. He exposes us to love us. He says, okay, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know their need. Blessed are those who know their nothing. Blessed are no, those who know that even their good works is dirty. Ah, why? Because now you can come to me. Now you know you need me. Blessed are you who mourn. Why? Because you see th the things the way they actually are. You see that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. You see that you in your sin is the problem with this world, not them and their sin. Amen? And so here's Jesus, and he's just exposing us, but he doesn't leave us there. This is the coolest part. He doesn't reveal to, our, to us our problem and then say, Boy, oh boy, good luck with that. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't say, man, I'm beyond, like you are beyond help. No, he exposes you, and then what does he do? <laughs> He's the answer to our problem. <laughs> so he exposes you, your problem, and then reveals to you that he's the answer to your problem. It's the Sunday school answer. You got a problem? Jesus is the answer. And that's not just a, like a write-off. No, it's the truth. I really mean it. Jesus is the answer to every single one of our issues. <laughs> he just is. Do we really believe that? And so Jesus goes and he says this. Okay, you have an impure heart. Look at, look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And if any one of us answer that question or that, that statement or response to that statement like, good, check that one off the box, then you're revealing your impure heart. <laughs> if, you're, if you're thinking, if you read these things and you're like, yep, got that, my heart is pure. Well, Jesus is about ready to expose us in the next coming chapter. If you just turn really quick, he says, okay, if you want to play that game, or in the next segment here, you want to play that game, look at verse 21 of chapter 5. All right, you want to, you want to play that game. You're going to check all of these off the box? Well, let's, let's go, he says, right? <laughs> Let me reveal to you, you, again, 
all the more. Look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be sub subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister is, is unanswerable to court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. <laughs> You got anger in your heart? Okay, you're good. You got a pure heart? Well, how about this? You got anger? You got anger in there? Well, your heart is impure. Your heart is the problem. And so Jesus continues to go on. Okay, I haven't committed adultery. But I tell you what, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. Verse 27, with her in his heart. It's not your behavior that's the problem. It's your heart that's the problem. And so Jesus goes, and he reveals to us, us, and it's not pretty, but yet provides us with an answer to our problem. The, see, the be attitudes then, remember, is you can't will your way to be this kind of person. Now, I know many of you, and many of you are super talented people. You could charm your way out of any situation. You could think your way out of any situation. And if you can't think your way, you'll work your way out of it, Right? I know a lot of you can do that. And Jesus presents to us a problem. You can't give yourself a new heart, can you? Hmm. So what do we do? Is our response. And if we ask that question, I, I would ask that we rephrase that question and say, it's not what do we do? It's what has God done? That's the gospel question we have to answer this morning. And so Jesus is continuing on and he's saying, you have an impure heart. You are the problem. You can't work your way out of this. Turn to Ephesians 2, verse 8 with me just quickly. Josh, I don't know if I put that up on the screen, man. I should have marked my notes. If it's there, just put it up behind me. And it's on me, not on you, bro. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. You can't will your way to a new heart. You can't will your way to be merciful, to band-aid that will eventually fade away and be torn off. Verse 8. <clears throat> For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So there's a problem here because we read this and we see, we think, verse 7 of Matthew 5, I just need to be more merciful. The problem is you can't. I just need a pure heart. I just need to get it. I need to work for it. The problem is you can't. I just need to be a peacemaker. The problem is you don't have peace, so you can't give peace. Because you cannot give what you don't possess. And so, so back to Matthew 5, we're going a tangent in Ephesians, and don't listen to me, listen to God's word. The right question that we must answer then and ask is not what do we do about this problem, but rather, what has God done about this problem? And what we see is that he, he fulfills every promise he has made from beginning to end. <laughs> Let's show this. Jeremiah 31. What does God do with the problem that Jesus reveals in the Sermon on the Mount and everywhere else? And the problem is us. What does he do with us? What does he do with our impure motives? What does he do with our impure heart? Does he say, do better, try harder, work harder? Church? No way. That's moralism. That's religion. Now, what does he do? He provides good news. <laughs> the gospel. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 31. 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a, a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Go back to Exodus, if you, if you just need a reference, Exodus because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. Man, that's just beautiful language, guys, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. It's not just going to be externally motivated it's going to come from within. I'm going to do something in them that's going to change them so that they can be the type of people that I call them to be. Because God never, listen, this is huge. Back to Matthew 5, and we're going to go to Ezekiel here soon. Matthew, God never commands us of something to do what we, could never, what we could do on our own. He always commands of us and demands of us a life and obedience that cannot be lived apart from him. Does that make sense? He would never command something of his people that he won't give them power to be able to do. It's how he works. So if, if we're reading the Beatitudes in such a way, man, I just need to be more pure. Is that true in and of itself? Yes. Is it possible by our own effort? No. Okay, if we read the verse 9 of Matthew 5... I just need to be more of a peacemaker. Okay, I can do this. I just need to be more of a peacemaker. Is that true, church? Yes. Is it possible in and of ourselves? No. So here's Jesus. So, so God in the gospel and a new covenant will come and he will write the law on our hearts. He will, it will be coming from within. Well, okay, what's he do with our hearts then? How does he fulfill that promise? Well, go back to Ezekiel 36. Just a little bit after Jeremiah, if you're unfamiliar. In Ezekiel 36, we see the problem. We see what he does with the problem of our heart. And it's just, man, I wish you need to know this, church. <laughs> we must know the promises of old to be delighted in the revelation of the fulfillment of those promises. <laughs> we must know this. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. It may be up on the screen. Thanks. This is God, and he, and he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and remove from all, from all your idols. I will give you, look at this, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So what does he do about the problem that Jesus reveals in Matthew 5? What does he do with this? He provides the solution. Jesus doesn't just say, good luck with that. Jesus says, I am the solution to that. Church, this is good news. This is what he does. So blessed are the peacemakers. You can't will your way to be a peacemaker. Everything Jesus is laying out in the Sermon on the Mount and in every one of his teachings is either this is what it looks like to live as a, king, as a citizen of my kingdom or here's what my kingdom will be like. So he performs miracles and does all kinds of amazing things 
And here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's describing in felt reality what his people of his kingdom look like, feel like, and smell like. Peacemaker, Jesus says. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's the Hebrew word that's related to it is shalom, which is perfect peace. And the reality is you can't give peace unless you've received peace, right? Hurt people hurt others, don't they? Unloved people can't love others, can they? It's just how it works. Broken people break people. Apart from the gospel, we have no hope of being a peacemaker. That, that word in the Greek is irene. It's a cool word. And it's this signifies a harmonious relationship, not merely the absence of war, not merely the absence of, of division, but rather parties that are holding completely different opinions coming together in spite of that. <laughs> Think of bones that are broke. It literally means to mend the two back to one. This is so cool. Now, uh, I've broken a few bones in my body before. I don't know how to not play hard in anything. So uh, I'm an idiot, and I do a lot of stupid stuff. Like, we just played basketball this past Friday, and before I left the house, it was early, but my wife, she's hardly awake, and she just uh, said to me, don't kill yourself, please, is what she said. And, uh, but I know that I've broken my collarbone, I've broken my nose, and I've broken my wrist, I've broken my fingers. I know that I can't do anything about this broken bone. Somebody else must do it for me. And it's the same thing with Jesus. You can't fix this on your own. You need outside help in order to mend that which was broken to bring back to one. That's the good news of the gospel. It's what he's done through his life, death, and resurrection. He's, took, he's taken that which is broken and he's put back together and made right with God of the universe that which was never be able to be made right on our own. He did what we could never do. He made us right with our Father. Amen. It literally is the word atonement, at one mint. He made one. He made us one with God. Now, here's the thing. We are called then to be peacemakers, those who are actively intervening in this world to bind that which is broken together. We are not called to be peace shakers. We are called to be peacemakers with a different message. The world tells you there's one way or another way, and Jesus comes in and provides a third way, <laughs> a better way, the only way. Now, if we go and we try and staple on this fruit of being a peacemaker, it will land flat. There is an abiding principle that we need to make sure we have. John 15, let's turn there quickly. We need to learn not to just read these and the commands of Jesus and the commands of God and say, I must do this, I have to do this, I need to work my way to do this. We must tell Jesus, Lord, apart from you, I can't do this. Like, like you grip, you feel it. Lord, I am so helpless I cannot do this if you don't do this for me and in me. John 15, beginning in verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be more fruitful, even more fruitful. You are already clean. Look at this. You are already clean. I've already done this. I've already washed you. You're already clean. Because of the word I have spoken to you, remain in me then, as I also remain in you. 
No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, though, you can do what? Nothing. So back to Matthew 5. We don't read the commands of Jesus. We don't read the demands of Jesus as a, okay, I just need to do better. We read the the commands of Jesus are there to drive you in your need for Jesus. (laughs) It's how it works. And we don't sit in apathy and we don't sit in passivity and say, well, Jesus just isn't working in me, so I guess I don't need to obey that command. No, you do. It's just, you do. It's just, you can't do it on your own. You need him to do it in you and through you because you can't give what you haven't received. And how much more true is that of this word peace? If you don't have peace, you can't extend peace. Jesus says in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus perfectly models peace, what it means to live in a divisive world with a peacemaker mentality. So Jesus is not only our example, Jesus is our power. Jesus is not only our power, Jesus is our life. (laughs) just how it works. And so Jesus, the Prince of Peace, if you know that language, that's back in Isaiah 9, verse 6. The Prince of Peace comes, and what does he bring? He brings peace into a world of division, into a world of hate, into a world of polarization, and voice your opinion just to beat someone up. He brings peace Ephesians 2, verse 17, He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, made right, guilty verdict, no longer guilty but innocent, before a holy, right judge. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what our souls long for, church? My my dad is here, and my dad tells his story as one who was just not at peace. I won't share it. I didn't ask him for permission to share that. Just one that was not at peace, and then all of a sudden he received the gospel, and what flamed out of him was peace. Just a peace, a, a soul, I mean, just a, a peace, a centering with, with your soul. It's what Jesus has come to bring. Look at Isaiah 26, verse 3. If we don't get this, we don't move on from this, church. We just dive deeper into it. 26, verse 3 of Isaiah. You keep, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because, Why? Because they trust in you. What this world wants us to do, back to Matthew 5 or stay in Isaiah and let that go. What this world wants us to do is look to it to give you what only God can give you. What this world, think of advertisements. This Advertisements are everywhere. Instagram ads, TV ads. My kids don't even know what that is anymore, but it's, they're still available. And this world wants you to look away to find peace here. Look away and find peace here. Look at this and find peace here. And 
here's the thing. When we grab those things to give us what only God can give us, we'll have anything but peace, correct? When we look to this world to give us what only God can give us, we won't have peace. We'll be left empty without peace. When we find our identity somewhere else, we won't have peace. We, we have these all over the, this church, and they're, uh, because the gospel is true, uh, this is my identity in Christ. If you, if you just need a sweet reminder on your way out, we have a bunch of these. Just take one, put it in your Bible, and be reminded of who you are in Christ. Who I am in Christ, I'm accepted. I'm secure. I'm significant. I'm a child. I am chosen. I am free from condemnation. I am hidden with Christ. I've not been given a, a spirit of fear, but of power. I'm a branch of Jesus Christ, the true vine. I've been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. I am God's holy temple. You want to be reminded of who you are in Christ so that you, out of the overflow, can give it to others. It's how Jesus works. It's what he's saying here. So, blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are you who make those who are at odds one. Blessed are you who bear this this ambassador for Jesus, the one who has come to make us one with God. Think of Jesus' disciples. Let's name some of his disciples. Shout it out. Matthew, a tax collector. Mark, who else? Luke, the doctor. Andrew, Peter, James, John, Judas, Simon the zealot. Now think of these bands of, rag, the bands of ragamuffins here, man. You have fishermen, you have a tax collector, and you have a zealot. You have Matthew the tax collector, who was actively working for the government, and you have Simon the zealot, who's actively working against the government. <laughs> Think about that. And what does Jesus do with this group? He takes that which is divided, and he brings them together. It's what Jesus does. So how, church, how can we be at peace with God, how do we come to terms with being at peace with God? It's the very thing that Jesus is driving us into in verse 9 here. He's saying you can't on your own be at peace with God. You must receive the peace of God first before you can be at peace with God. You must receive the Prince of Peace. You must receive the offering of peace. It's not what you can do, it's what he has done. It's how it works. And then what can we expect out of that. And if you have time, if you're a note taker, and on the back of your announcements uh, sheet that's in your programs, we have notes. You can take notes. And don't take my words down. Take biblical references down, scripture references down, please. You should write down, though, Genesis 15. You should just sit there this week in Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. How do we have peace with God? Well, we receive the very peace that God extends to us. We receive the peace offering that God has extended to us in Christ. What you see in Genesis 15 is that Abraham was put asleep and God came all the way through this covenant offering to provide peace. Abraham did nothing but believe. <laughs> it's how it works. And then here's what happens. What can we expect then? Okay, great. I have peace with God. What can I expect out of that? What can I have my mind ready for out of having being a peacemaker and having received peace from God. Well, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. So what can we expect out of having peace with God? What can we expect having been filled with God? What can we expect after having received every ounce of our need in Christ? What can we expect? Persecution. (laughs) What can we expect when we drive on the left side of the road? In America, a car wreck. We expect collisions. We expect it. We expect suffering. We expect persecution. To not expect any of that is like a boxer on Showtime television when the bell rings being surprised that they're getting hit. Like he's hitting me. Yeah, bro, you're in a boxing match. Or like a soldier in the middle of war going back to their general or their commander saying, they're shooting at me. Or, or like what Luke does. Uh, my, my son Luke plays basketball, and I, I'm, I'm a fundamental basketball guy. So I tell Emma to guard him and try and steal it. And when Emma steals it, he gets mad and throws a fit on the ground. And I look at him. I have no pity for him, none at that moment. I was like, bro, this is basketball. What do you expect? fellow Christians, fellow brothers and sisters, disciples of Jesus, when you're suffering and being persecuted because you're driving on the left side of the road, what do you expect? Are you surprised by this? This is actually Jesus. Look at Jesus, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Look at, look at 1 Peter chapter 4. As we land this plane. First Peter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in it as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Do you think Peter was listening in here in the Sermon on the Mount? I think he was. I think he was being a good disciple of Rabbi Jesus and repeating what his rabbi taught him. Don't be surprised at the suffering. Look at James. You think look at look at the brother of Jesus in James chapter 3. Specifically verse <clears throat> Oh, give me a second here. I lost it. James chapter 3, verse 2. We we all in many ways stumble. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Excuse me, chapter 2, I believe. Thank you. That's it. I even wrote down the wrong reference, bro. Thanks. Consider it pure joy. There it is. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it pure joy. You think James was listening in? You think Peter was listening in here to their rabbi, to their teacher? I think so. I think they understood what Jesus was saying here. And they not only understood it, they lived it. Consider it 
Back to Matthew 5. Consider it pure joy. Rejoice, verse 12, and be glad because great is your reward. Why? Why are we being persecuted? Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, who is righteousness? So, okay, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. You must ask, well, what is or who is righteousness? Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You're being persecuted because you're standing for the name and fame of Jesus. Not your name and not your fame and not your opinion and not your political party and not any of that. You are being persecuted because of Jesus. When you stand with him, you can expect persecution. Not for secondary matters. Not for your thoughts on your own ways and your opinions. No, you're being persecuted because you're standing with Jesus. And what can we expect when we're driving on the left side of the road, church? A car wreck. But we must, we must be honest with ourselves. And we must learn to look introspectively to ourselves. Jesus, am I being persecuted because of your name or am I being persecuted because of my name? In an age of social media and keyboard courage and opinions being like bullets, am I being persecuted because I want to be known and my ways to be right? Or am I being persecuted because I'm standing with Jesus and his ways and I'll let him be right and me be wrong? Jesus is showing us here, church, what it means to live in a world of division. Jesus is showing us what it means to live as peacemakers in a world of peace shakers. He's showing us, here's who my citizens of my kingdom are. You will be a peacemaker and you will be persecuted. And so here's how we'll end. The greatest criticism of the church today, Western church today, is that it's not being persecuted because there's not much to persecute in it. We, we're being, we are okay with halfway in, halfway out Christianity. We are thinking that, that Christ has called us to a comfortable life instead of a sacrificial death life. We should not be celebrating when we're not being persecuted, church. It's actually revealing a problem. Jesus says, when you are persecuted, you rejoice why? Because you're standing with me. You're with me. You're following me. Jesus in Luke 14 verse 25 says, follow me. Leave your mom and your dad and all that you know behind. Love me more supremely than anything. It's going to take sacrifice, church, but answer this with me. Will it be worth it? Yes, it will be. And what we do is we go, we go out from here. We're about ready to take communion. And we go out from here and we, okay, all right, Lord, I'm gonna, Jesus, search me. Am I being persecuted for your name? Am I, am I putting my way above your ways? Am I wanting just to be right for the sake of being right? You need to search me and you need to tell me and you need to show me where I'm wrong. And I'll turn to you and I'll follow you wherever you take me. And we go out in the world. We come back next Sunday. We come back and say, Did you, you won't believe what happened. I'm beat up, I'm broken, I'm limping in here, but I'm standing with Jesus. 
I'm standing with and the good news of the gospel is changing lives around me and disciples are being revealed and made through me. Can you believe that? He's doing the work in me and I'm, I, he just does it through me. I can't believe it. And you're bleeding and you're bloody. You got fat lips, not from playing basketball, but from making disciples. That's, Jesus is calling us here to, to reflect on why are we being persecuted? And if you're not being persecuted, do you see that as a good thing? Suffering is the way of Christ. Paul talks about it everywhere. So, as we, as we end here, we cannot give what we don't possess. If we don't have peace from God in Christ, you won't be able to give peace from God in Christ through the gospel. I want you to just let us just think. What is your response to suffering? What is your response to persecution? What is your response to hardships? Is it bitterness? Is it resentment? Or is it peacemaker? I'm going to press in, Lord. Thank you for letting me suffer with you. Just take 30 seconds here as we end. We'll walk through communion and we'll worship and take. That's 30 seconds of just silence to receive. What's he saying to you? So God, we, we look to you. We look to you for our peace. We have no peace apart from you. Thank you for, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, you came after them and you came after us. You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. You wanted to be known. You made yourself known to us to bring us peace, to give us peace with you. The, the very thing that Every single one of our hearts here long for is peace with you. You have given us in Jesus. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, as we approach the Lord's Supper. Thank you that you, your body was broken, your blood was shed. To, to pay the penalty we deserve to pay, to pay the debt that we never could pay. Thank you for conquering the grave given us the Holy Spirit so that we can live as obedient citizens in your kingdom. And Jesus, I pray that we would never take any credit for it. You did it. You worked it. We received it. Thank you for the gospel. I pray that each one of us here responds either in faith-filled obedience that you're calling them to or faith-filled salvation that you have extended to them. Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we, as we approach the Lord's Supper, I um, just want to make sure that we, we take the Lord's Supper as often um, as we can here. And, and, it, and you probably noticed we're starting to take it more and more, and we will continue to take it more. And what, what we want to make sure is clear is that re religious practices apart from abiding intimacy only breeds death. <laughs> and we want to be very aware of this. That religious practices, well, why do we do what we do here? Well, it's just because of something that we do, that we should do. Instead of 
overflowing, abiding intimacy that we get to partake in the Lord's Supper together. It's a joy. It's a grace. It's an extension of what Christ has called us to do. We want to make sure that you are abiding in Christ and receiving from him what he wants to so freely extend to you. But we don't just do this just because we, get, we have to do this. We do this because we get to do this. So when we take of the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what Christ has done. We no longer, we are thinking back on our life that he's transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light. We are remembering the story of the Exodus in which God put, told the people of Israel to put blood over their doors to cover them from the angel of death. And Jesus is what was a shadow in Exodus story is now flesh in Christ. He's the shadow caster. We remember Jesus and him taking his body, breaking for us, his blood poured out for us to make us right with God, to give us peace with God. And we're celebrating that truth when we take the Lord's Supper today, church. And if you're not celebrating that truth, we ask that you don't partake, that you use this time to reflect on why you haven't celebrated that truth, why you haven't received that truth, why you haven't put your full weight on that hope of the good news of the gospel. So it's twofold here. And so just ask, before we even sing, guys, uh, play the, the music, just give 15 to 20 seconds of reflection and, and take it. Take it when the Spirit leads you. We, we won't take it together. Take it when the Spirit leads you to reflect on celebrating the good news and asking God to give you faith-filled obedience by the power of His Spirit from here. And then we'll float out of here after we worship. <laughs>